Good morning. Um, as Kate said, I am married to the incredible Mr. Dan Plummer. Um, we've been in this church 15 years, which seems impossible. Um, we came, I was a student when we came, I was at Roehampton, and we met here in this very church, and somehow now we find ourselves married with five children. <laughs> um, our eldest is about to turn 10 in the new year, and Tiny Jessica is four, five months old, coming up quite soon. Um, I asked the kids how they would describe our family. How would you describe our house? And they said, big, loud, and fun. And I think our neighbors can attest to at least two of those. Um, So this season, we've been talking about Advent. And uh, Lily has shared with us about Um, waiting and about the promise of the king. Last week, Sam talked about the coming of the king. And this week, we're going to talk about the sacrifice of a king. So if you have a phone or a Bible, why don't you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, right at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The story of Christmas doesn't begin with a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. It doesn't begin with a bright star in the sky. It doesn't even begin with an angel coming and announcing the birth. The story of Christmas, as the gospel writers remind us, begins right back at the very beginning. And to fully understand this story of Christmas, we need to go back through the line of Christ, back through a line of kings and shepherds and prostitutes. A long line of names of women and men, Hezekiah, Josiah, Solomon, David, Ruth, Rahab, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. Through that long list of names at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the faithful, the fallen short, the righteous, the rebels, the rivals, all the way back to the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as he spoke, he created the hills on which the shepherds would rest their sheep. He created these tiny grains of sand that would come together and form this desert route from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And with a word, he flung stars and planets in the sky, and this one overwhelming star that would capture the imagination of the Magi and would lead them to a stable and to a saviour. The story of Christmas begins in a garden, and it starts with God with us, Emmanuel. Now, that's how it began. But sadly, as we know, this, this picture of Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God, having this amazing relationship satisfied with him, with everything they had. It lasted about a chapter. (laughs) And then in comes this snake, 
And this snake brings this of apple seed of doubt, this, this question. Did God really say that you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? Or perhaps phrased another way, what, you can't eat from every tree? Mm. Do you think God's holding out on you? I mean, is this, is this really enough for you? Why be with God when you could be God? And with that one bite, instead of God with them, God was left in Genesis 3, 9, saying, calling out, where are you? You see, um, at that moment, as we know, God, God sent Adam and Eve from his presence. They were, they were taken from the garden. His physical presence they were removed from as a consequence of these actions. But God knew that that physical separation had already happened. It had happened in that moment as, as they bit down on the apple, as they chewed it and it started to become bitter in their mouths. That was the moment when they chose to disobey God, that the separation had already taken place. And this barrier of shame and regret, this hollow place between man and God had already started to appear. And the results of which even the effects, even creation itself is not spared. Sickness, famine, death, murder, hate, disaster, it ravages through our land. And we don't have to look far, I'm sure you can say, to see the effects of the fall. God is a holy God. He is a God of justice. And there has to be justice. God has to separate himself from our sin. And yet, he's also a God of grace. And a God of faithfulness. And a God of mercy. And even here, right at the very beginning, we see this. In the midst of their mess, in the stench of their sin, the Lord says, where are you? Now, as I was preparing this talk, the Lord kept giving me pictures, and I thought, oh, I'll do a little PowerPoint. That might be quite helpful for you guys just to see visually. And I had a picture in my mind of this scene in Genesis 3, verse 9, and so I did a little search to kind of find it for you. And it was fascinating to see how this scene has been portrayed in art, in history. Um, And so I thought I'd show you. Now, this is not a comprehensive search, so if there's art historians out there, you know, I'd love to hear, because I found it fascinating. But <laughs> I thought we could take a quick look. So, so this first slide, we have here Adam and Eve, and they are cowering. I don't know who this is by, by the way. Um, they're literally cowering, their faces turned, kind of all shame-filled. And the Lord's standing over them, his arms crossed, and he's looking down at them. And it's almost like he's saying, rather than, where are you? It's like he's saying, what have you done? You know, that kind of look. The second slide. So this is amazing, this picture. This has like the entire scene of Genesis on there. Um, But right at the front, we have the Lord. And he stood with his finger wagging, and Adam and Eva right front and center with him. And his finger's out. And it's almost like he's saying, one tree. You had one tree in the garden not to eat. And you've gone and done it, haven't you? Well, blah, 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 blah. You can just imagine that tirade or rant that he's on. And Adam stood there kind of like, it wasn't me, it was her. And Eve stood there looking quite pasty and for some reason smiling. Like she's not quite captured the whole <laughs> severity of the moment. Um, yeah. This third one, this is one of my favorites. 
there's a few like this. So you've got kind of Adam and Eve again looking quite, oh, Adam's saying, it's her, it's not me. She's looking pasty. I don't, she always looks pasty, like she's quite ill. Um, and the Lord's coming down. This is in a robe, sometimes it's in a cloud. And he's like got his arm out. And it's that kind of, you just wait till I get down there, sort of ready to give a real roast in. Um, suffice to say, none of these were the picture um, that the Lord showed me. Um, it may be how we think God may react. It may be how we might react. Um, but I don't feel like it's the heart of the text right there. The first words God opens with, it isn't chastisement. It isn't punishment. Yeah, there's consequence. But the first words he opens with is, where are you? Where are you? And the closest image to what I saw at that moment was something like this, that the Lord with his arms outstretched, his arms out, and he's there desiring to be with them in their mess, to clean them up and to restore them. And throughout the Old Testament, we, we see this story, a story of God fighting for his people, pursuing them, intervening on their behalf. He's intent on their rescue. He sent the law to guide them. He sends kings to model. That didn't work out so well. He sends prophets to remind them about who he is, his character, what he's done. And in, in all of it, he's like looking for ways to be in the midst of his people. So he envelops himself in a cloud by day and fire by night just to take his people through the desert. He, he camps out with them in the middle of the desert, confining his presence to an ark, to a tent, just to be with them. But as we know, none of this could fix the problem. None of this could deal with the sin, could deal with this chasm of separation between God and his people. And none of it could fully turn the hearts of the people back to him. And quite often as we read the Old Testament, it's kind of like this kind of one step forward, two steps back, kind of dance with the people. And then finally, Isaiah, the prophet, as we've been hearing, comes with a promise. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. For unto us a child is born, Isaiah 9. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of his greatness and his government, there will be no end. It tells of a time when God will be with his people again forever. Not just on a person, not just with them for one moment in time, but with them forevermore. And then, of course, came the wait. That whole 700 years of waiting. Um, And I know Sam and Lily both touched on this this idea of waiting on God. Um, but I, I, I just felt the Lord wanted me to highlight this again quickly because I think there's two lies that we can trip us up when we're waiting from God. And the reason I want to highlight it is because I think they're, they're specific to this idea of waiting from God when we're separate from him. And I think that there's something also about this time, this season of Advent that kind of aggravates that, that, that kind of stirs it up a bit. So if we look quickly... The first lie, I might need to click again. The first um, 
lie that we can believe when we're waiting on God and we're separate from him. It's that waiting on God when we're separated from him can make us believe that we're alone. If you just click once more, it should come up. Or we'll just carry on. Back. I'm going to carry on. What is it about the intensity of Christmas that makes loneliness feel so intense? There's the physical loneliness, that person that we know down the street, um, maybe old, maybe young, that's single, that's alone this Christmas. But there's also, um, there's also the feeling sometimes, that even though we're not physically alone, we feel alone. So we could be on Oxford Street doing our shopping. Millions of people around us. Our faces sort of crammed against a tube. We might be in Sainsbury's doing our shopping, buying our turkey, or even stood and sat, sorry, around our Christmas table with all our family, with all our friends. And yet there's something in us that feels like something's missing. Something in us that says, I don't know whether anyone knows me. Something aches. Something's missing. And as we know, we can try and fix that. We can try and do a few things to make that gap feel less. So we might post something on social media, try and get a few likes and enjoy that feeling. Um, We can eat a few more mince pies, a couple of gin cocktails. But none of it really does the trick. There's something about this time of year that makes our need for connection so apparent and so fiercely missed. The second lie that I think we can believe when we're waiting on God in our separation from him is that we can, we can lose hope of anyone coming to fix things. We can lose hope that anyone's going to come. And in that loss of hope, in our impatience, we can try and fix them ourselves. Again, there's something about this, this time of year that um, can make our eyes lift up. And it's like we notice, we look around and we go, that was a mess. This was a mess. And band-aids start writing songs and we all start giving money more and we become more generous. Um, we start noticing there's all these homeless people everywhere. Where did they come from? They, they weren't here in the summer. And we start, we start wanting to give. We, we sort of see the mess and we go, oh, We need to solve this. We need to fix this. And I think that's really apparent this time of year. And you need to hear me. This is great. This is not a bad thing. This is is the gospel. And we need to look out for the poor. I think the problem comes when our reason for doing this is driven from a place where we're separated from from God. It's when we do it because we're despairing, God's not going to show up. That's the problem. Anne Voskamp, um, New York Times bestseller, um, author of this book called A Thousand Gifts, and another book, she writes, the message of Christmas is not that we can make peace or that we can make love, make light, make gifts, or make this world save itself. The message of Christmas is that the world's a mess and we can never save ourselves from ourselves. We need a Messiah. And so... 700 years after that promise in Isaiah, the people were waiting for a king. Perhaps they'd given up hope. Perhaps steeped 
in loneliness and despair. They were expecting a revolutionary. They were expecting someone who was going to come and fight, hoping that someone would overthrow the Romans for them. And instead, how did the Messiah come? It's completely died, hasn't it? Well, <laughs> the Messiah... love technology. The Messiah came as a newborn. He came with his arms flailing. Now, the moment after each of our children have been born that's, is really prominent in my mind, probably firstly because that incredible pain has stopped momentarily, but also um, because it's the first moment you hear their voice and we hear them cry and the midwife hands them to you and their arms are just sort of like out and they're all vulnerable and crying and looking for their mummy because all they've known their entire lives is this most intimate of connection. And then they're born. All they want in that moment is to be found again. Jesus came to us powerful and vulnerable. He came out of his mother, his voice crying loud, crying for reconnection, crying out, where are you? Where are you? Uh, Dan and I have just completed um, the marriage courses past term and one of the things that really struck me is this idea of just how powerful vulnerability is as a means to connection and restoring relationship this action is so powerful it might surprise you um, but I can be a little bit passionate sometimes a little bit stubborn uh, <laughs> thankfully our marriage pre-marriage questionnaire warned Dan about that um, but I am learning slowly that the goal is not to be right and to prove it. Um, but the goal is to stay connected. And when I find myself wanting to dig my heels in and to fight my corner, that's the moment I need to step back. That's the moment I need to step down off my pedestal and humble myself and open my arms and my heart and let the other person in. And it's hard. It's really hard. And it's disarming. And it's vulnerable. And it's powerfully restoring. Jesus stepped down from the throne of heaven. He stepped down from the throne of heaven. And he came as a baby. He had arms open and his heart set on connection and restoration. A restoration of a separation caused by man, by us, not him. And then he grew up. Oh, we're back. Um, so as a man, he, he gathered people to him. Again, his arms open, saying, come, follow me, come. He loved being with people, God with us. He'd party with them. He'd eat meals with them. He'd just walk for miles and miles and miles with loads of people around him, which I think would drive me mad, although sometimes that feels like the school run. Um, <laughs> he outstretched his hands and laid his hands on people to heal them and to bring restoration to their bodies, to their minds. He'd reach out and touch people that other people wouldn't touch, people that other people would recoil from, that they'd move away from. He'd make a point of being with people that people didn't want to be with, that people maybe didn't even see. They didn't even notice them. And as he walked around, he taught. 
And one of the things he taught a lot on was this message of mercy. A message of the Father's unrelenting love for his people. In parables like the prodigal son. There's a little Rembrandt there. And then finally on the cross. With his arms outstretched again. Where he had every right to fight. Every right to dig his heels in and insist that he, without sin, did not have to die. It was not his sin. It was not his fault. It was not his mess. It was our fault, our wrong, our sin. But instead he stood there and he hung there, arms outstretched, looking out on the crowds. Some of them crying, most of them mocking. And he poured himself out to death, taking the punishment in our place so that he could be with us always, so that he could be with us forever. Powerful, vulnerable, sacrificial, abandoned love. And it says in Matthew that the moment of his death, the curtain which in the temple which separated the Holy of Holies, the the dwelling place of God's presence on earth, Um, and it separated it from them and the rest of the temple. But that curtain in that moment was torn in two. That 60-foot curtain tore in two, top to bottom. Three days later, a tomb was found empty. Jesus had been raised from the dead. He alone defeated death. He defeated sin and darkness on our behalf. Why did Jesus come? He came as a king, as a baby, to sacrifice himself, to die and to rise again so that this chasm of separation, this chasm of darkness between us and God could be removed. Sin could be dealt with so that he could dwell with us, in us, forever. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so, God calls to us now. Where are you? Where are you? How do we respond? What does it mean for us today? Well, as I've been praying for us all this week, I felt the Lord speak to me about a couple of things. And so I thought I'd share them with you. Um, Firstly, I think for some of us, I think the Lord's calling us this morning to open our, our arms and to open our hearts to people that we're separated from. It may be a co-worker, it might be a family member, a sibling, a spouse. But this Christmas, we're meant to press into the discomfort to choose mercy over being right. And he knows it's vulnerable and he knows it's hard. And you need to hear me now because this is really important. Um, if, you're, if you are in an abusive relationship, then things are going to look different from you. And that's okay. Um, we can connect you with people that can help you through that. But what you need to hear me say, and what I'm talking about today when I say vulnerability, I'm talking about powerful vulnerability. I'm not talking about a vulnerability that's imposed on you. You need, you need to hear that. That's really important. Um, there's... The second thing I think the Lord's challenging us to today is, for some of us, it's that call of John the Baptist. 
um, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make your path straight for him. The Lord came down from heaven to make a way for us to be with him. And some of us, it's like we've got things in the path between him and us. Some of us know what they are. Some of us, it's a bit like Adam and Eve in that first picture where they were kind of cowering down and they're trying to cover it up. And it's like the Lord's saying, I can see it. (laughs) But where are you? Come on, let's deal with it. For some of us, we're not sure what they are. But it's like we have our own little thrones that we've stacked up to separate us from the Lord. And today, this morning, I feel like the Lord's saying, it's time to climb over those thrones, guys. It's time to move them out of the way. And so this Christmas, we might need to spend some time this morning and this Christmas just praying, what are those things that are between us and the Lord? And finally, I think there may be some people here who've never responded to the voice of God, calling, where are you? Or perhaps we've done it a long time ago and it's like we've got lost along the way somehow. And as I'm talking this morning, it's like your hearts are beating within you. And you need to know the Lord stands and his arms are open and he's saying, come, come to me. So we'd love to pray for you. So... um, If any of those things or anything of that else makes sense, then we'd love to pray for you. Kate, why don't you come and why don't you stand?